sleepy Labor Day weekend, I can think of no better passage to wake us up this morning. Romans 8, 31 through 39. Hear the word of the Lord for you, his church, this morning. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet, and it is a light unto our path. So I pray by it this morning that you would teach us, that you would challenge us, you would comfort us. Would your son be our teacher this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in recent weeks, I don't know if you've been watching the streaming services, but there's been a couple documentaries and movies released uh, recounting the same story, and it's the story of a soccer team and their coach who were trapped uh, in a flooded cave. And if you aren't familiar with this story, either by watching it on the news or watching one of these shows, uh, these 12-year-old boys uh, and their assistant coach in Thailand had been exploring this cave when floodwaters rushed in and flooded all the tunnels, making them uh, impossible to escape. They were enclosed. And this story drew international support. All of the international media are outside of this cave. Divers and scientists came in from all over the world uh, to help and aid in what would be probably the most dangerous and perilous rescue missions of our time. And in watching some of these films and remembering what it was like when I actually watched this live on TV, uh, it's striking to me how easily everyone rallied around the rescue mission of these boys. And if you begin to go back and look at everything that went into the rescue of these 13 lives which were in this flooded cave, uh, you realize that the one thing that propelled the whole rescue mission, that propelled everything that happened was the belief that these 13 lives in the cave mattered. And without that core belief, this whole rescue operation was doomed. And to give you some examples, the cave system that these boys were trapped in, it was so dangerous and it was so perilous and it was so confusing that it required the best divers in the world to train and execute this mission. No one else could have done it. You just couldn't have walked into this cave and done it yourself. And in response to that, divers from all over the world came in to train and execute the mission 
to rescue these boys. And at one point, they realize that the only way they're going to get these boys out of the cave uh, is that they have to sedate the boys so that they sleep the whole way while the divers swim them out of the cave. And you watch these documentaries, these scientists and these government officials who are wrestling with the fact that this breaks every bit of medical ethics and just human dignity that they know. And yet these 13 lives mattered, and this was the only way. And then at one point, the weather was so bad, it rained for days. And farmers said, you know what? We will find ways on our land to divert the rainwater away from the cave so that these caves don't become impassable. But in doing so, they risk their own livelihood and their own crops. See, everything about this rescue hinged on the belief that these 13 lives mattered. Every thought, every decision, every action was filtered through that belief. We have to save these boys' lives, right? And that's the power of a core belief. Because when you have one, everything about your current situation is filtered through it. And it gives you a pathway to move forward. And it gives you a pathway to move forward even with what you have in front of you looks scary and dangerous. And so as we come to the end of Romans 8, perhaps maybe the most soaring passage in all of scripture, right? Paul asks us a question, right? In light of everything he's just said in the chapter, in fact, in light of everything he said in the book of Romans up until this point, the fact that we are heirs with God, we are empowered by the Holy Spirit, we are awaiting a future hope that is beyond all comparison, what shall we say to these things? Right at the end of the passage, Paul is trying to bring us back to the core. What does this all mean? What is this about? What do we come back to time and time again to filter our lives through, to make decisions through, to live our lives through? And the answer is this. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? When you're tempted to doubt, when you're feeling broken and overwhelmed, lost, afraid, anxious, what is the core that we as the people of God come back to time and time again? What promise animates our life together? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's the core. That's the hope to which we as a church, to us as a community, as Christians, we walk in every single day. And so as we're going to see this morning, Romans 8, 31 through 39 is just explaining that one truth. And it's Paul defending, this is the reason why you should believe that that statement is true. And so what we're going to see is that Paul says that you can believe that this is true. That if God is for you, who can be against you? This is true because God gives, God justifies, and God keeps. So let's look at the passage and see how Paul defends this. And the first way he shows us this is that God gives. In verse 32, uh, Paul begins his defense of why we should believe, verse 31, that if God is for us, who can be against us? He says this, He who did not spare his own son, who gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And Throughout this section of Romans, Paul is oftentimes going to refer to Old Testament passages to help us understand his flow of thought. And here, he's actually referring back to the story that we read this morning. 
in Genesis 22 about Abraham and Isaac. And if you remember from that story, this is the story where God tells Abraham to go sacrifice his son Isaac. And Abraham is obedient to God and he goes and he gets everything ready to go. And right before he is about to kill his son, the angel of the Lord stops him. And key to Paul's point in Romans 8 is this quote from the angel. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Now, throughout the church's life, there have been a whole lot of people and a whole lot of ink has been spilled trying to explain and figure out this story because it's tough to envision God commanding Abraham to take his son's life as an offering. That just doesn't sound like the God uh, that we know. But if you get below the surface of the story for a second, what Paul wants us to do and what Paul wants us to see in Romans 8 is that the entire command to Abraham was not to push him to the brink, but was to test his trust. See, remember, Abraham had been promised by God that he would be the father of a nation, that he would have the amount of offspring numerous as the stars in the sky. And in old age, in a miracle, God finally gives him an heir. And then here is God right after he gives him the heir. And he asks Abraham to sacrifice that promised child. I want you to think about Abraham connecting the dots for a second. It's hard to be the father of a nation and to have offspring numerous as the stars in the sky if you kill your only heir. So now Abraham's caught in a dilemma, isn't he? Does he trust that God will be faithful and will keep his promise even if Isaac is taken from him? Or will he trust his gut? That he says, you know what? God can't keep his promise unless Isaac remains alive. Does he trust that God will provide or is Abraham gonna fall back on himself and what he can see and what he can do with his own hands? And that's not only a question that Abraham's dealt with, is it? It's a question we all deal with, right? In the joys of life, when our family is great, when our jobs are fulfilling, when Florida beats Utah on a last second interception, when our life is where we want it to be, Are we willing to trust God when it takes us into the unknown, when it makes us uncomfortable, when it perhaps leads to suffering? Or maybe the flip side of that. Maybe you're in a season of suffering. Family member is dying. We're on the edge at work. We're wondering how we're gonna provide for our family. Our kids are struggling. Can we trust God even when our prayers aren't answered the way we hoped? And Paul comes to us in Romans 8 with the answer that you only need to look. Because as Tim mentioned earlier, Abraham had to almost blindly trust. He had to look forward. He didn't have the full picture. He had to look to the future for a promise fulfilled. But us as believers today, we don't have to just look forward in blind hope, do we? But we look back in confidence. Because we know that God did not spare his son, his only son from us, but he graciously gave him up. And how could he not give you all things through him? See, I think we oftentimes like to put God in a box, don't we? 
We like to say, you know, he has to do this and he has to do this. He has to do this if he truly has my best interest at heart. And I can't tell you the amount of conversations I've had where people are hurting because they say, you know what? God can't be for me because he didn't do what I asked him to do. And yet Paul says, if God is for you, who can be against you? And your first proof of that is the cross. See, God already solved your deepest need. Jesus endured your punishment on your behalf. And to think after all of that, God is going to leave you hanging. That would be illogical. See, we only need to look to the cross to see the depth that God is willing to go for you. And if you read all of the old church fathers, they'll constantly come back to this idea again and again and again. If God's willing to do that for you, how could he not care for you? How could he not want to nurture your faith? How could he not want to grow you and challenge you and sanctify you? You see, your proof is you only need to look back to what he's done already. If he did not spare his only son from you, how could he not be for you? So God gives, but also God judges. And if we keep moving down the passage, Paul then moves into another Old Testament image, and he moves into this image of a judgment seat, right? In the cosmic courtroom of God, Paul asks another question. Who gets to charge God's people? Who gets to be the one to condemn them? Because Paul knows this. If he's going to say, if God is for you, who can be against you? There's actually a really major logical flaw with that statement. Because God can't be for you if you're a sinner, if you've transgressed God's law, if you've rebelled against his goodness, you stand guilty and deserving of death. And one of the recent trends in Christianity is this aversion to talking about our faith like this. And as a result of the rampant individualism today, people want to believe in their own goodness so much that to think of judgment, to think of themselves on the wrong side of God's judgment they believe that that's actually a destructive belief. It's a belief that inhibits our own view towards ourselves, right? It would be better if the church just stopped talking about God's wrath and sin and, you know, it stuck to the good things, the beauty of God's love, the affirmation of our identity in Christ, right? We don't need to address sin. We don't need to talk about wrath because that doesn't help our own view of ourselves. It just makes us feel low. Right? And it certainly doesn't attract a modern world. That's not attractive to a modern skeptic. See, in our world today, the prevailing view of God, and Christianity, and spirituality is that all of this just exists to complete us. You know, we have about 80% of it, and we just need God to fill in the extra 20% to bring us to our full potential. And yet God, or Paul doesn't want us to sidestep judgment here. Right? He wants us to look it full in the face. He wants us to consider it. And here's why. Because judgment gives something meaning. Judgment gives something meaning. Think about it. The fact that God would judge sin shows how corrupt and dangerous it is. It's not something that you can just brush aside. 
right? The fact that God would move and defend his holiness and judgment shows in part how glorious and great it actually is. And we all know we want judgment. To share this story, um, Allison and I have notoriously bad luck with having our cars hit while we're parked in a parking lot. Uh, Allison had her car hit. She wasn't in the car, but we walked out and there was a massive dent in the side of her car. I've actually been hit while I was parked and getting ready to go into a restaurant. A car backed into my car. And in both cases, the person who hit us left no note, no nothing. And in my case, just drove off while I was watching them drive off. And it's brutal to watch that because all you want to do is go find a cop and tell them, hey, I need you to hunt down this person. Why? Because they hit something that meant something to you, right? And it's not just financial, but it's the time, it's the energy to get it fixed, right? We want judgment because when judgment occurs, it actually connotes dignity and value. It's worth it. So Paul's saying God will judge his world. And is it because God is cruel? Is it because God just wants to see everything burn? Absolutely not. It's because his world is worth it. But as Paul says, his world means something, but so do you, right? Who will charge God's elect? He says, it's Jesus who has that power. Jesus has the power to judge, but he was the one who laid down that authority and he took your place. See, I think in our world, there's people who long for validation and significance. They will look everywhere to find someone who will validate them and someone who will find their life significance. And they will look everywhere for it, but it's actually the cross where you will find that because that is where judgment and grace meet. One, God will judge, meaning your life has significance. It means something. But also, God is willing to take your place. And I don't know what connotes more value about you than that. You're guilty, and yet God took your penalty on himself. Your sin was real, but God was for you. And if God is for you, who could ever be against you? So God gives, God justifies, and then finally God keeps. And you get to the most poetic section of this entire text. And Paul asks, who's going to separate you from God's love? Who, who has the power to break us from God's arms? Could it be danger? Could it be famine? Could it be disease? What, what could possibly do it? And then Paul throws in this allusion uh, to a psalm, Psalm 44. Uh, it's a pretty uh, sobering quote. Uh, and if you read the psalm it comes from, it's a pretty sobering psalm. Uh, and throughout the stanza that this quote actually comes from, the psalmist is crying out to God. And he's saying, God, we have been holy. We have followed all your rules absolutely perfectly, but we're still being persecuted. We're still being killed. And the psalmist is basically asking God the question, hey, God, are you going to step in or not? Are you going to be for us or not? I think that psalmist is question is the major reason we all struggle to trust in God and sometimes, right? We see the brokenness of our world. We see the brokenness and the suffering in our own lives. We see the difficulty and all of us at some point or another have honestly asked the question, God, are you there? 
if you're for us, I know I've prayed this to God. If you're for us, I thought, who can be against us? But we fall into this trap, don't we? That we think that that last statement, who can be against us, means that there should never be any opposition. There should never be any struggle. And so Paul recognizes this and he affirms two things. One, that suffering will happen to members of Christ's church. That suffering will happen. But they can't separate you from God's love. Right? Paul doesn't say nothing will happen to you because you are loved by God, but he says if and when these things happen, nothing can separate you from God's love. I heard a pastor in Florida say recently, and I love this line, uh, that there's a lot of Christian moping going around. A lot of Christian moping. Because a lot of us are looking at our nation, and maybe for the first time, we're noticing that there's resistance, that you don't gain social capital by showing up to church on a Sunday, that our legislation is not reflecting Christian values, that we're having maybe for the first time to discern what we watch on TV because the values are being challenged that we hold to be true. And in turn, a lot of us, maybe you're in this group, maybe are turning into mopers, right? We, we're going back to this promise and we're saying, God, you're not doing what you told us you would do. You're not holding up your end of the bargain. You're not blessing us. You're not giving us what we expected. And a lot of us are just turning around and we're frustrated. We're bitter. We're angry, right? We're just going to step away. We're going to disengage from culture altogether. And yet what Paul is referencing here at the end of this chapter is he says, you need a perspective shift, Right? When we say God is for us, who can be against us? We have to avoid the trap that all we're talking about is our earthly circumstances. Right? If you read Romans 8, I hope you get the sense that it's not just dealing with now, but it's dealing with all of eternity. Right? Paul, in verse 35, all he lists are earthly things. Did you pick up on that? Wars, dangers, disease persecution. Those are all earthly things. Those are all challenges we deal with here. But then Paul says, because what Christ has done, we've become more than conquerors. And that's actually super conquerors in the Greek. And then look at his next list, right? It's not just contained to earthly things anymore, but cosmic ones, death, life, angels, rulers, present, future, height, depth, powers, anything else in all of creation. See, Paul is saying that the proper perspective of the Christian is not just an earthly one, but it is a heavenly one. Because what Christ has done, your eternity is sure. And God is working with your eternity in mind. Right? So the question becomes, where are we looking today? Because we can look at the world and be very depressed by what we see. Right? We can see that the church is not in favor as it once was. But if we look with an eternal view, what we see is that the gospel will continue to go forward. In fact, what has pushed Christianity more than anything else in the world is adversity. When persecution squeezes, what happens? The church expands and it grows. Nothing can stop the slow of the gospel. So Paul knows that even in our weakness, even when we're suffering in these things, we still win. Even when we're struggling, we still win. Why? Because our eternity 
is sure because we know that Revelation tells us that God wins. If God is for us, who could ever be against us? Nothing in heaven or on earth will separate us from the love of God. I'll close with this. Uh, I've had the joy over the last few weeks uh, to rewatch the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Uh, I watched it for the first time uh, in college, and now I've gotten to reintroduce uh, my wife to it. She'd never seen it before. Uh, and let me tell you what, you can never replace the first time you ever watch something. Uh, you, can never, you can never do it. But there is something special about watching something again, right? Because familiarity starts to take over and you can start to look at different things that you may not have seen before, right? You begin to remember quotes better. You begin to look elsewhere in scenes and you start to see things that you didn't see before. You start to appreciate the subtle foreshadowing because you know how the story ends, right? You take time to look at it differently. And so as we close this morning, Romans 8 is nothing new. And we should never really think it is, right? This is the core. This is what we come back to time and time again. But as one of my mentors once said, you can never grow past the gospel. So as Paul draws us back to the core of our life together, he's asking us to wonder anew, ask new questions, see God's love in a new way, ponder how he is sufficient for you today. See, returning to the core is never actually a step back, but that's the well of joy that will empower growth in life in the present. So would we hear God's promise to you today that if God is for you, who can be against you? And rejoice again. These words are trustworthy and true. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that nothing in heaven or on earth can separate us from your love through Christ. We thank you that that promise is trustworthy and true. And would it be the core of our lives? Would it be what we build our lives on? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.